Here we are again. How's everybody feeling? Four years later, politics is in the air. Policy isn't really being talked about. There are sound bites everywhere. And this one feels a little different. Like there's a pandemic that is like heightening the fear all around us. Racial injustice has been highlighted in new ways. There is a serious lack of incivility in the air. We're getting policy points tweeted to us. Every four years, we, um, I think we have a temptation to expect too much from politics. Recently, I was listening to an interview with Biden on NPR, and he was asked um, in the wake of the protesting that was happening after George Floyd's murder, he was asked the question, um, what can you really do if you are president? You were the vice president uh, in the administration of the first black president where so much policy was created to come at some of this systemic injustice that we still see in our nation. And he did not respond literally with this quote, but this was essentially what he said in a roundabout way. It was like, there's really nothing I can do. There's nothing we can do to legislate some further change when it comes to this. There's some tweaks here, maybe a little bit of damage control here but I don't know how much we can really do. Look, depending on your policy take or how important civility is to you, you might think that one side or the other is going to make the United States of America a bit better. But I think that deep down, we know that neither party can adequately deal with what faces us. The more we depend on public policy to do the heavy lifting of the way of Jesus, the more we turn politicians into messianic figures, the more we lose our calling in the world. Now, when I say our calling, I want to pause for a second. I probably should have started with this. I'm a pastor of a church that, just like Lisa mentioned a few minutes ago, are trying to become apprentices, faithful apprentices, to Jesus, who we believe shows us what God is like, who shows us what the ground of our being is, what the love and logic that philosophers and songwriters and poets and scientists have been talking about and trying to explain for centuries. We believe like the culmination of what God is like is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. So I'm speaking right now specifically, and we always want to be really careful because we know there's a lot of people listening in or who come to our services on a Sunday who aren't followers of Jesus and are trying to explore. So we always want to try to meet you where you're at. But I want to be really clear, I am speaking directly to the heart of my brothers and sisters here because there is a calling that as soon as we become followers of Jesus, no matter where we are, what we're dealing with or struggling with or what angle we've come in or what persuasion we've had baked into us about how we see the world, our calling, I want to submit to you, is to bear witness. You can write that phrase down, bear witness to another World Said another way, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are told um, that our citizenship is in heaven. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. Full stop. What does that say about where our citizenship then is not? There is no talk of dual citizenship. I was tempted today in like some act of drama to just 
stop the whole sermon there, like three minutes in. Just remind us where our citizenship is. Paul talks about it. Um, uh, he talks about the church in Philippi in the book of Philippians, if you're familiar with the Bible. He talks about the church in Philippi being a colony or an outpost of heaven. Peter calls the church to be a holy nation, a uh, set apart. Um, I had a history teacher in high school uh, where one morning as we I went to a public school and we would stand up and we'd say the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning. Uh, we had history class like first period that day. And I, for some reason, looked up and saw him in the corner of the room. And instead of his hand over his heart, I noticed it was like a little further down. And I noticed he was like saying something else that didn't quite line up with what we were all saying. So after class, I went over to him and I started to like delicately kind of like prod him a little and ask. Um, Now, I grew up, I was a, a preacher's kid. So I think he knew that my parents were Christians might maybe assume that I was a Christian. And so he led with, well, Andrew, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, which was surprised to me. And, and then he proceeded to say, you know, during the Pledge of Allegiance, I'll sometimes say this. I can't remember exactly what he repeated to me, but it was something the equivalent of like a prayer that was for the whole world. He, he reminded me that as a, as a follower of Jesus, he said, for me, my allegiance is to God and his love for humanity. Someone doesn't say, like, someone who doesn't say the Pledge of Allegiance, that at that moment for me was, was a, like a big deal, an eye-opening experience. And I'm like, ha, this is such a nice sentiment, like liberty and justice for all. Surely that is a thoroughly Christian ethic. But I was exposed in this class to see like how other nations saw news events and how different cultures actually clashed and different ways that American history could be told. And I realized that my history teacher's very thoroughly like worldview about the way of Jesus was, was actually affecting a bit of how he was teaching this class, helping us see the bigger world. I couldn't stop asking questions from that point on which ultimately drove me back to Jesus' statement, which is my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world. His way, his rule and reign, <laughs> rule and reign were on another level. It's like Jesus saying my movement is about essence, not location. Essence and not location. It was a way to be in the world but not in some way of it. Which leads me back to the whole colony and outpost of heaven language that Paul uses. So Philippi was a colony of Rome. The city was a colony of Rome. The currency and the ethos and the ethics and the government, the way things were done in Rome was now happening in this place, Philippi, hundreds of miles away from Rome itself. Paul uses that picture to describe in a way what church is to be like an outpost of heaven. Now this raises all sorts of questions. Like what is heaven then like? You mean all of those visions that prophets had of lions laying down with lambs and weapons being turned into gardening tools? You mean every tribe, tongue, and nation around the table together? You mean even the lowly and the outcast given high esteem? You mean the place where the king, the one on the throne in this kingdom, the president (laughs) is the one who laid down his life for his friends and enemies and became a servant to all? 
You mean that kind of world, that sort of heaven, that kind of power? I have so many questions. My kingdom is not of this world. I'd heard that for years because I grew up in the church. But for some reason, leaving that history class, I, I, it, it opened up a whole new set of questions for me. Let me give you some context for this. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus said this while he was on trial for insurrection. His kingdom, his way, had finally collided with the kingdoms of Herod and Pilate and the Hebrew religious elite. And everybody wanted answers. Since Jesus' birth, he had been at odds with the establishment. They wanted him dead ever since the rumors uh, came up about him being the king of the Jews. So he questioned Uh, So he's questioned constantly, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus then asks in this section where he's on trial? Or did others talk to you about me? So he's talking now to Pilate. These religious leaders have brought him before the governor. Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, here's the famous line, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from a different place. You are a king then, Pilate then says in this dialogue. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate then responds, what is the truth? There's a whole sermon there. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. So Pilate's here like, I don't, this guy may be a little like off his rocker, but he doesn't seem to actually really be a threat. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Pilate is, a, is, a, is in a place where he is underneath Caesar trying to govern a very contentious area, area where these Hebrews are. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. So now the political pressure is on Pilate to do something. Anyone claims, who claims to be a king opposes Caesar, the religious elite said, the chief priest said. So when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and said, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. And then the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests of this Hebrew tribe that are called to be a blessing to the world say, we have, really have no king but Caesar. Now this is wild. The chief priest, that the chief priest would say that we have no king but Caesar. So a little history on this. Um, in 1 Samuel 8, 1 to 22, we have this extremely important foundational passage for understanding God's view of government. God had been the sole king over Israel up until this point in history. He had appointed judges to settle disputes, but that was about it. There had never been an established governmental structure or any sort of positional leader over Israel. It would seem, uh, and I'm boiling down like monster books of theology here in commentary, but it seems that it was never God's plan to have humans ruling over one another. He had always wanted to be our direct king. Governments only arose as a result of our brokenness. One writer talks about just mitigating disaster. In Israel, God was trying to inch 
humanity back to its ideal. So in setting apart this tribe, trying to bring them back to his ideal of having a tribe that once again recognized him alone as Lord. This is key. And, and But by doing this, he would sort of free these people from human lords and kings. And so in an age in which Samuel, the, the, Samuel lived, where this passage is, the faith of the Israelites starts to waver. Everything starts to get unhinged. And so we read in this passage that they wanted a king to be like all the other nations, to rule over them and to go out before us and, quote, fight our battles. If you're still tracking with me, you can see how this is going to get dangerous quick. In other words, the people felt that having a king would make living easier and make them more secure against enemies. God then responds to this request. So these people are saying, give us a king like all the other nations so they will fight our battles. And to this request for a king, we have God saying, they have rejected me from being king over them like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. It's almost like these people want human rulers only because they no longer trust God to rule. It suggests that the very existence of governments is evidence of human rebellion, but that's a whole other thing to talk about. So in 1 Samuel, governments are a concession, a concession. God concedes to humans who cannot trust God to rule over them. So back to Jesus's trial here, where this phrase, my kingdom is not of this world, is uttered. There is a contrast between what Jesus is saying and what the chief priests and the crowds are yelling. We see Jesus refusing power, not calling in a department of defense, pledging a very different allegiance and announcing a different truth. And then you have the chief priests concerned with maintaining their power and control by giving their allegiance to Caesar, trading political power and clout for faithfulness to their calling. This has been a bad look for Christians, for followers of God ever since. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly give in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, moral and spiritual power over This is an unhealthy, again, worldly view of power is what I'm talking about. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to power, but emptied himself and became as we are. It says that in the book of Philippians, where we read about the outpost of heaven from Paul. The temptation that they have is to consider power a holy instrument. This is a very real temptation. And so I I hear people all the time will say things like having power provided it's used in the service of God and your fellow human beings is a good thing. Some arguments to be made there. And we're going to talk about that a little bit next week. But Henry Nouwen says this, with this rationalization, the rationalization that that, that we, we need this power and this power can be used for good. With that rationalization, crusades have taken place. 
Inquisitions were organized. Natives were enslaved. Positions of great influence were desired. Episcopal palaces and splendid cathedrals and opulent seminaries were built. And much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, whether it's the Great Schism in the 11th century, the Reformation in the 16th century, or the immense secularization of the 20th century, we always see that a major cause of whatever like rupture and divide is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. Now and goes on and says, it seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. What makes the temptation of power so irresistible? Maybe it, it's the, that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. My citizenship is in heaven. The way of Jesus is not of this world. Essence and not location. Those with no king but God. It does not appear that when we hear all these big statements that we are being invited to offer a set of political suggestions for the world. We are being invited to embody the alternative. Now this seems straightforward, but we're prone I'm prone to allow our allegiance to drift and become enmeshed in our current systems. Right now, I think people are so enmeshed that it's hard for a lot of people to distinguish between political figures, for instance, from themselves. Let me explain this domino effect, um, I think, of becoming enmeshed with other allegiances that I see taking place. So here's just an example. To critique the president or any political leader is to critique the party that I align with. To critique the party is to critique the values that I hold dear. To critique the values that I hold dear is to critique my vision of flourishing in the world. To critique my vision of a world that flourishes, that is like healthy and good, is to critique my understanding of God. To critique my understanding of God is to critique me at the deepest, at my deepest center. You can see how the dominoes fall. This makes sense why people get defensive when their political leader is criticized. Now, I get this outside the church. I do not get it inside. So so when the candidate you support is criticized and you feel deep anger and defensiveness, the question we need to ask is, why am I so defensive? Have I confused any part of my core identity with the person or party that I support? Speaking to Jesus followers, if a political leader is beyond genuine critique in your mind, the political leader has taken on some sort of low-grade or high-grade God-like status. And there's a commandment or two that has something to say about that. Let me keep going and talking about this enmeshment. I think when Christians are more fired up and more conversant around partisan talking points than the Sermon on the Mount, we sadly demonstrate that the way of Jesus is secondary and a servant to our politics. Do you remember this picture here? A Christian football player taking a knee to raise awareness of systemic injustice, something that he was seeing in our nation. Whether you agree with him or not, 
the early church would be utterly baffled by the idea that future Christians would shame someone for not swearing allegiance to empire. Think about your own experience for a moment. Just growing up, did you, um, do you hold the Pledge of Allegiance as sacred but not confess the Apostles' Creed? Did you think that making the sign of the cross was a little bit superstitious, but you always placed your heart, your hand over your heart for the pledge or for the anthem? Um, growing up, uh, maybe you couldn't care less about the church fathers. No one talked to you about that, but you were taught year after year to venerate the founding fathers of our nation. You didn't like statues of saints, but you love Mount Rushmore. I don't know. Did you know the Pledge of Allegiance before you knew the Lord's Prayer? I'm not trying to create some like false binary that we can't appreciate these things or see the good in these things. But but if you answered yes to some of these, you might find yourself enmeshed in American civil religion in ways that you didn't expect. Some folks always seemed, uh, no matter how often this comes up, it's funny, they always seem a little bummed when they find out that God bless America doesn't appear in the Bible. We're warned of all of this in 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 4. He says, join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Rather, they try to please their commanding officer. So Paul here has in mind a soldier stationed in a foreign land. The soldier's assignment is to suffer if need be, in order to carry out the agendas of his homeland, which is what? Heaven. His assignment is not to become involved in civilian affairs, but to to rather be focused on pleasing his commanding officer, who is who? Jesus. We are quite literally soldiers stationed in a foreign land. Our task is to please our commanding officer by imitating his example and then thereby furthering the work of his kingdom. And so to do this, it is imperative that we are careful to not be preoccupied with civilian affairs. When Christians mistakenly think that they are furthering the kingdom by pronouncing which political opinions and candidates and programs are Christian ones, they might, and there's a complicated discussion here, but they might be letting themselves get distracted from the one task kingdom people are given, to do what Jesus did. And this is how the world, we believe, is changed. Jesus showing us in flesh and blood what heaven looks like, washing feet, like caring for broken people, healing the the most vulnerable, standing with the most vulnerable, a savior who's come to serve, to forgive his murderers, to lay down his life, divesting power. Jesus subverts the empire and the religious elite through embodying the way of heaven. Remember, Jesus begins his ministry announcing that the kingdom of heaven is where? Here. He goes around showing us what it's like. And not just with his pronouncements. And I want want some of you to hear this. Not just with his pronouncements, but with his everyday actions. 
He notices people and blesses people and goes out of his way to find those who are lost. And then he tells his followers of Jesus, his followers, his apprentices, his disciples then, just like the spirit tells us now, be like this and you'll be blessed. You'll be participating in the joy of heaven now. It's a better way. It's the way of life. It's where the truth is. Remember, Jesus lays it out clearly in his Sermon on the Mount, his famous like kingdom manifesto. He says, God's blessing will inevitably follow if we are with the poor, the merciful, the hungry, the persecuted, the peacemakers. I'm just quoting the Bible word for word. God's hope for us is that one by one, we as disciples would infect the nations with grace, that we would live the contagious love of God out that will woo the nations into a new future. History is filled with folks coming together, forming close-knit communities and meeting each other's needs with no kings, no welfare systems, and no president necessary. His is a theology and practice for the people of God. I say this again, not a set of suggestions for empire. I think we have some good suggestions for empire. That is not what these commands and practices are for. Until the church comes to embrace the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus as announced and embodied and enacted by Jesus. Until we come to see that as a viable political alternative to the kingdoms of the world, it will sell itself and squander its witness in service of lesser lords. That was a Brian Zahn quote. So what about voting? We do live in a like quasi-representative democracy, right? What about running for office? What about marching to overturn laws? What about voting like for a guy um, who we don't like him, but we'd like his policies? Or what about voting for the other guy that we really like, but we don't like his policies? Or the, the, the mess that's in the middle? Stay tuned for next week. <laughs> and stay tuned for some talkbacks that we're going to do throughout the week. For all the big and small questions about how we work this out, I wanted to make sure we started here in any discussion like we like to have every couple of years about politics. We must remember that we, the church, do not have, or at least should not have, two allegiances. We cannot serve two masters, it says in Luke 16. We are to obey government, not because we have a duty to it, but because we have a duty to God. And he tells us to submit to government insofar as it's possible. That's the best way to understand Romans 13. Government is simply not worth bucking against if we don't have to, because it will distract us from doing our duty, our leaning into our calling of manifesting the way of Jesus and announcing the good news. After all, for centuries, Christians were jailed, even killed for refusing to make sacrifices to Rome and for refusing to kill for flags or for idols, insisting that there is something worth dying for, but nothing worth killing for. They refused to pledge allegiance to anything short 
of Jesus. The greatest sin of political imagination is thinking there is no other way except the broken systems that we have today. See, the vision is that one by one, these disciples would infect the nations with grace. It wasn't a call to take the sword or the throne and force the world to bow. They were to live the contagious love of God to woo the nations to a new future. Let me remind you right now of where Caesar's empire is. And let that inform you, not in some dire, sad sort of way, but let me remind you where our country will be. This too shall pass. And so let me close with Psalm 33. The psalmist says, no king, let's just put the word president in there, is saved by the size of his army. No warrior, let's put military in there, escapes by his great strength. A horse, let's put a political party in there. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its strength, the psalmist says, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him on those who hope in his unfailing love. Repeat that last phrase for a minute. Those that hope in his unfailing love, the eyes of the Lord are on those who hope in his unfailing love. You, I encourage you, you can be a non-anxious presence in these times. You do not need to be paralyzed with anxiety as a result of the election given all that we just talked about. You can confess your limits and your blind spots without insecurity. You can live with a hope that makes no sense to the world. So today, I want to end our time with practicing this in a way, pledging our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God. I don't know... Um, I don't think this was exactly what my history teacher back in 11th grade was saying. But I want to invite us, if you're comfortable with this, just like I'd invite us sometimes to, to begin to say yes to the way of Jesus, to begin to say yes to his grace. Think of this as a point, a marker in your story, a point of conversion, a coming to the altar. So would you say this to me? say this with me. Today, we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God, to a peace that is not like Rome's. We pledge allegiance to the gospel of enemy love, to the kingdom of the poor and broken. We pledge allegiance to a king that loves his enemies so much he died for them. We pledge allegiance to the transnational church that transcends the artificial borders of nations. We pledge allegiance to the refugee of Nazareth, to the homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head. We pledge allegiance to the cross rather than the sword, 
to the banner of love above any flag, we pledge allegiance to the one who rules with a towel rather than an iron fist, to the one who rides a donkey rather than a war horse, we pledge allegiance to the revolution that sets both oppressed and oppressors free, we pledge allegiance to the way that leads to life, to the slaughtered lamb, we pledge allegiance. And together we proclaim his praises from the margins of our nation to the centers of wealth and power. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. So would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For yours, Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Help us, Lord, in these coming weeks to with patience and conviction wrestle together as a family with what it means for us to faithfully embody politics of heaven, to bear witness to your grace and your love, to love mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly with you into this contentious and difficult moment. I pray peace upon my brothers and sisters who are struggling with fear and anxiety and give us all, Lord, across the spectrum, a vision of of hope, a deeply rooted biblical vision that you, Lord, hold the future. And so we walk forward, Lord, without any fear, with even joy and blessing in our hearts, knowing who is on the throne. Pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son. We're going to finish our time together as we do most weeks in Zoom. We're going to come and take communion. It takes about five minutes or so. You can click the button that's there in the chat. There's a link that's right here across my chest. Um, punch that in. Come on over for just a moment. And we will um, take the bread and the cup together as we close. <laughs>